Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, and welcome back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Here's why you should join today's show. Financial heavyweights are joining forces to launch a new crypto exchange. We'll discuss what this means for the industry and for the average investor. Plus, we're on the verge of the merge. We'll do a deep dive with someone who has worked on it, Tim Bako. Stay tuned for key takeaways from that interview. It's also the final day of the SALT conference in New York City. I'm Ash Bennington, and I'm joined today by Santiago Velez. Santiago, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ash. Thanks for having me back. Well, it's great to have you here with us once again. And we should say, don't forget to click subscribe and hit the like button if you're on YouTube. Now, let's get right into today's price action. We're seeing Bitcoin stabilize above $20,000 after a big drop yesterday. That started around the time when the CPI data came out for the U.S. That, of course, is consumer price index, the inflation number. It showed inflation is still very hot, hotter than expected. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have been very sensitive to inflation as of late. Ethereum is also down, though not as much as Bitcoin. Ethereum is hovering right now around the $1,600 mark. Santiago, any thoughts on the wider market and the price action? Well, you know, it's just another day in crypto as far as I'm concerned in terms of the drop. It, it still shows that uh, Bitcoin and other digital assets are uh, a risk off uh, in terms of um, tightening financial conditions. So uh, not entirely unexpected, but uh, I'd rather be a crypto holder today than an equity holder. Um, significantly outsized uh, price action in equities. Uh, so for me, you know, no, no, no big deal. Yeah, outsized price action is the downside yesterday in equities. We should say uh, it looked a little bit like crypto markets. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, uh, a 3%, 4%, 6% change in crypto on a given day is not significant. Uh, in equities, though, uh, it, it is, it's a big deal. So uh, I think that, um, you know, equity investors maybe should come along and see what we're doing over here in crypto and, and see better opportunities. It sure is a big deal. Investors uh, had whiplash yesterday uh, in traditional equity markets. So let's take a look at our top news story of the day. Some of the biggest players in traditional finance are joining forces to launch a new crypto exchange. Fidelity Investments, Charles Schwab, and Citadel Securities are among the companies backing it. It will be called EDX Markets and will serve both institutional and retail investors when it launches hasn't yet been announced. In the press release, the board of directors said, quote, crypto is a $1 trillion global asset class with over 300 million participants and pent up demand from millions more. Unlocking this demand requires a platform that can meet the needs of both retail investors and institutional investors with high compliance and security standards, end quote. Santiago, is this a ringing endorsement of crypto from companies that are just about as TradFi as it gets? Well, you know, I think this is a uh, another sign that the space is starting to mature and that there's significant opportunities in facilitating 
of the purchase, trading, and ownership of digital assets and the custody. Uh, so, you know, th these institutions partnering together to provide a platform to me signals kind of the next phase where uh, the next billion people uh, are onboarded. Uh, and to do so, you really need to create infrastructure that's secure, reliable, and, and has regulatory compliance uh, considered. Uh, that's really the only way that uh, you know uh, uh, participants are, are have the confidence to engage, to see and, and experience the same kind of product quality that they are used to in their uh, brokerage accounts. Um, so uh, for me, just the next logical step in this process. Um, overall, I think there's a lot of fees to be made in facilitating these kind of services, and it's going to be a good thing for the consumer, right? Uh, competition is good, uh, and uh, security will will, will improve. Um, it, it is a little bit of a challenge to the idea of self-sovereignty in terms of having your private keys. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see how that plays, uh, plays out. Uh, but overall, I think it's a very positive development. Hey, Santiago, let me ask you this. What does it mean for other crypto native players in the space? We're talking here about the Coinbase's and Coinbase's and Krakens of the world. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, I think, well, as always, competition is good. So to see a lot of uh, large actors coordinate and, and create an entirely new exchange uh, it is a good thing in terms of competition. So the quality of services that we as users, participants, investors, uh, see and participate in, we, we, that should improve, right? We should get yeah. more customer service, more financial advice. Um, the, the whole spectrum of services should should get better. Uh, overall, though, I think that uh, the, a lot of the expertise remains in the tradition, let's call it the um, traditional digital asset uh, coin bases of the world. Uh, those players really have a, a great deal of experience in the custody um, and the trading engines that that uh, facilitate uh, digital assets, which is which is unique and distinct from equities, for example. Um, so there's a lot to be learned by uh, yeah. traditional financial institutions re regarding those kinds of unique uh, properties. Yeah, I think that's spot on, Santiago. And I would just add, it also runs in the opposite direction when you see traditional financial uh, brokerage houses who have a lot of experience in doing things like user interface, user experience, uh, and making things really simple for investors because they've been doing it for literally decades in this space. Uh, I think that runs both ways. And hopefully, hopefully, the ultimate winner here will be consumers. Yeah, and we're, you know, I would not be surprised to see more partnerships, more mergers and acquisitions et cetera. We saw our BlackRock's exposure to Coinbase earlier uh, this year. Uh, so, you know, this space is only going to continue to grow um, and the products and services will, will continue to improve. So very encouraging. Yeah, BlackRock was actually at uh, SALT this year, and I chatted with those guys a little bit about what was happening on the digital asset side. Uh, so let's move on to our next story here, because this is an interesting one as well, Santiago. South Korea has issued an arrest warrant for Du Kwon, the founder of Terra. Prosecutors are seeking him and five other individuals on allegations that include, according to Bloomberg, violation of the nation's capital market laws. Prosecutors say... All six individuals are currently in Singapore. Duquan was a primary developer of the algorithmic stablecoin Terra USD and its sister token Luna. Bloomberg says their unraveling saw a combined sixty billion dollars in market cap. Excuse me, sixty million dollars in market cap evaporate to nearly zero. Duquan has not responded to requests from Bloomberg or from Reuters. Uh, finally, Santiago, I wanted to talk a little bit about SALT. Uh, it's the final day of the SALT conference right now here in New York City. On the main stage this morning, there will be Balaji Srinivasan. I don't know if Balaji, if we can see that footage, we might have a feed. Uh, Balaji is supposed to be speaking live about now. I know they were a little bit lagged uh, earlier in the day. 
He's a 25-minute time slot, which will certainly be interesting uh, to everyone there on the floor. But don't get too much FOMO. Balaji just had an epic two-and-a-half-hour conversation with Rao Pal. Uh, you can watch it on the Real Vision website. Just go to realvision.com forward slash crypto to sign up. And, of course, it's free. It looks like from the feed, Balaji hasn't yet taken the stage yet. Uh, but we will keep checking in on that. Uh, Santiago, let me ask you this. Have you been to SALT or any other of the this SALT conference or any other SALT conference? Oh, unfortunately not. Uh, however, I, I watched it live on YouTube as it's streaming. And yesterday I got the opportunity to watch uh, Raul Powell and, and Dan Moorhead from Pantera. Uh, great conversation, just a, a small tease. Um, it's just interesting to note the contrast between the deep dives we do here on Real Vision and kind of the uh, short segments of exposure that you might get at SALT. So love to love to see. I'd love to see uh, more and more conversations and more formalization of the space. So highly yeah. encourage people to watch it. Well, they're serving a different audience, right? They've got hedge fund managers who are like, what the hell is this Ethereum stuff that they're talking about, right? So they're they're doing the intro there and we're doing the deep dive here. So it's a great fit. Uh, so one of the other big talking points at SALT this year, not surprisingly, uh, is the long anticipated merge in Ethereum. This is the transition uh, of Ethereum's proof of work model to proof of stake, of course. Uh, according to different download clocks, it looks like we're just hours away from it right now. If you're on the West Coast in the US, it should be tonight uh, for folks in many other parts of the world that will be tomorrow, which is Thursday here in New York. I think it's fair to say that the excitement is palpable, uh, but there's also concern over how exactly this is going to play out. Obviously, this is a, a massive, massive event in crypto. It's been compared in the past to changing the engine on a jet airplane at 50,000 feet. Santiago, before we take a look into your deep dive with Tim Bako, give us your overall thoughts from where you sit about the merge. You know, I think it's unprecedented, and I think it's extremely exciting. Uh, it's a technological achievement. If they are successful, it will be uh, an incredible uh, achievement uh, over many years of, of planning and work by a, a decentralized group of developers around the world. So yeah. I think it's a, it's a fantastic testament to how decentralized networks can, can evolve and change and adapt. Uh, so I'm very excited to see it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, with that said, let's jump right into your interview with Tim, who works on protocol support at the Ethereum Foundation, and is someone who knows the intricacies of Ethereum and the merge inside and out. Let's take a listen. The original design for proof of stake was actually kind of bolted on to the existing proof of work network. The idea was like, we'll, we'll use proof of work and we'll like start introducing proof of stake gradually and still kind of rely on proof of work as a backstop and you know eventually migrate the whole thing over. Um, and this is kind of why people think you know proof of stake took forever on Ethereum. It's, there was really like these two designs. So this first one was kind of researched from like 2014 and got ready to implement in around 2018, um, maybe a bit earlier. And but there were a couple of issues with it. Like first, it was it was very coupled to how like Ethereum worked under proof of work and 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 kind of wasn't making use of a bunch of advances in cryptography and and networking that like had happened since Ethereum's launch. Um, and one of the implications there is like the minimum stake at the time was fifteen hundred ether, um, which wasn't worth as much as it is today. Um, 
but you know, you could imagine if we'd gone in that world, it's, today this is like a you know multi-million dollar amount. Um, but that, that's not great. So around 2018, there was this decision made, like, what if we designed proof of stake from scratch as a whole new network, you know, without any of the assumptions? Um, what could that look like and would that be better? Um, and eventually, you know, we could just combine that with the application layer, either by having to migrate over or, you know, migrating that over, but kind of trying to not have any of like the baggage or technical baggage that Ethereum had. Um, and so we did that in 2020, this launch, and it's what people refer to as the beacon chain on Ethereum. So this beacon chain is basically Ethereum's proof of stake engine um, that was launched completely separately from the proof of work chain so that um, if there was a problem with it, it wouldn't affect all the applications. Because by 2019, 2020, you know, there was already a ton of activity on Ethereum. So we didn't want to transition over to a new system uh, until we, we were quite sure it was, it was ready. Um, so the way it works is people can deposit Ether into the beacon chain from the proof of work side, um, and then they become a validator. So this is like real Ether at stake. And they, they do all of the operations to validate the proof of stake algorithm, except actually running the transactions. So like, you know, if I send Ether to you, this doesn't happen on the proof of stake chain today, it still happens all on proof of work. Um, but we wanted to make sure that everything else basically worked as intended. So we launched it, uh, saw it live for uh, about half a year, growth to tens of billions of dollars in value secured. And at that point, we, we started having confidence that, okay, you know, this thing is working, there's billions there, you know, we haven't found issues. Um, we should move to use this instead of proof of work. And this is the idea behind the merge, is to transition from using proof of work to kind of manage where all the application and the user value lives to using proof of stake. Um, and as you kind of mentioned uh, just now, Ethereum is like this 24 seven, 365 days a year network. One thing we, we really wanted to, to optimize for was not having any downtime with this transition, right? Like Ethereum has never had downtime. Every time we have an upgrade, it's instant. Um, so a big part of like the design and, and engineering challenges was like, how do we transition from proof of work to proof of stake without any downtime at all? And this is what sometimes people say, it's almost like, you know, change the, engine of an airplane mid-flight, right? Like it, it can't crash, it has to keep running. Um, so that was a big part of, of the design. And the other bit that's, that's also quite important is when people deploy contracts to Ethereum applications, we want to give them a fairly high guarantee that their application is going to keep working as intended uh, for quite a long time. And there's often some edge cases there with regards to pricing of operations, but generally like we want this to be like, you know, you deploy your application and, and it works. Um, and so we, that's the other thing we wanted for the merge is you don't want like smart contracts to have to do anything, right? You don't want Uniswap or OpenSea or anyone else to have to like make a change for the merge. And this is what the current design kind of gives us where once the transition happens, basically we'll have the last block on proof of work. The whole transition happens in the background and 12 seconds later, the first block is on proof of stake. Um, and the network is kind of using that as, as its new consensus algorithm and smart contracts and end users have had nothing to do uh, in order to like participate in this transition. So Santiago, this was a bit of history about proof of stake on Ethereum. Tim was telling the story about how proof of work uh, was split out into the beacon chain where proof of stake is taking place right now. Obviously, that's separate from the main proof of work chain. For non-techies, what's the significance of all of this? Well, I think it's important to remember what uh, Ethereum and blockchains are. Right? They're essentially databases uh, that are run on computers that are spread out all over the world. 
And you have to get them to agree on what the shared state of the ledger is at any given time. And, and the reason you have to do that is so that you can avoid events like a double spend and you can make sure that the transactions and smart contracts are processed as expected. Um, so it's, it's, it's really a, about how do you coordinate a new change in how people arrive at consensus, a new methodology without breaking the existing system. And then once you once you've demonstrated that uh, that this new process is effective at, at arriving at consensus and making sure those transactions are processed, that you introduce it in such a way that all of the uh, prior historical transactions are retained and that going forward, uh, you don't you don't break the system and, and it's yeah. reliable and secure. So I think it's really about coordinating a, lot, a large number of people and a large number of computers uh, successfully. Yeah, extremely well-framed, Santiago. Now let's take a listen in to Tim discuss his view of what benefits the proof-of-state network could bring versus proof-of-work. Tim made some interesting comments here. Let's take a listen. The energy consumption of proof-of-work inherently rose exponentially. And so I guess the, the main issue with that consensus algorithm, or at least what many people would apply as a critique, is that that ordering and, and that uh, arriving at consensus uh, doesn't necessarily have to be that energy intensive. Yeah, and, and that's interesting. Like, obviously, it is um, on both Bitcoin and Ethereum today, kind of a huge amount of, of energy output that goes that goes into this. Um, but I think from Ethereum's perspective, that's not even the main reason uh, why we, we think, you know, proof of stake might be a, a better choice for us. Um, so the, the energy output is, is obviously good, but it's not sufficient for Ethereum to change things, right? Like, you know, for example, we had this idea of a whitelist earlier. Whitelist doesn't take any energy. Ethereum doesn't use that. Um, so it's the energy expenditure itself is not sufficient. Like we, by moving to proof of stake, we wanted to have something where we maintain all these properties around like anyone can participate and 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 kind of keep this this openness to the network. Um, and ideally, because this is a big complex upgrade, you'd want to not even just maintain the properties, but ideally you get something out of it as well, right? Because if we did, you could argue we could do all this work of moving from proof of work to proof of stake and you know be in the same state uh, without the environmental impact. That's probably worth it. Um, but I think. We, we, we kind of hope that it would go beyond that and, and the current design does where in proof of work, um, like you said, you have these issuance of coins, like every new block gets a reward associated with it. And that's how you motivate people to, to kind of act uh, in the interest of the network. They know that the rewards are gonna come from the network uh, in the future. So they better kind of co cooperate and you know act in a way that, that aligns with, with the network's interests. Otherwise, they, they kind of forego those rewards or they might you know, diminish the value of those future rewards. Um, and you can think of this as like, you know, proof of work has like this carrot that you put towards miners and, and you help to bring them in the right direction. And there's pretty high opportunity cost for them to not, not follow it. Um, the thing we get with proof of stake beyond that is we get the ability to also introduce uh, kind of punishments for certain actions that are detectable in the protocol uh, that are not under proof of work. Um, and this is, I think, a really underrated kind of security part of it, where we move from having just a carrot, you know, incentivizing people to do the right thing, to also having like a sort of stick where in protocol, there's some faults that we can see, um, but in proof of work, you can't really penalize the miners because you don't have like a link to their resources, right? Like if you do something wrong, the Bitcoin protocol can't go to your mining farm and you know shut off your miners. Um, whereas in proof of stake, because we literally use stake, so like tokens from within the protocol to secure the network, 
we can identify those. And it means that if there's things that we can prove, uh, you know, like objectively that are that are wrong, like say somebody just being offline when it's their turn to be online or somebody contradicting themselves about what the right history is, then the protocol can can kind of punish those actions. Um, and, and I think this is a really valuable security property because it, it, it kind of bounds the actions that these these actors, which like determine the state of the chain can do um, to a greater degree than than we can do on proof of work. So this last segment was about the advantages of proof of stake, specifically about security and energy consumption. Obviously, environmental impact is a major concern on many blockchains. ESG is a very hot topic, especially in Europe right now. Santiago, how do you think about security and energy consumption in a proof of stake environment? And how will you describe it to people who aren't following this as closely as you are? Well, you know, I think that uh, on the first, first of all, on the energy consumption side, it, there's no doubt that proof of work uh, has a exponentially rising amount of load that it's taking from world energy. And I think that's particularly pertinent now in, in the crisis that we're in. Um, you know, that has to play into uh, how people view what type of network they might build on, particularly if there are constraints around their ESG and, and what kind of uh, investments they can make. Um, but in this case, I was surprised to hear that the, pri the primary motivation for the transition wasn't really to lower the energy consumption. That just happened to be a, a, a great um, after effect. The primary motivation was to change the incentive structures and to lower the amount of essentially ETH required to secure the network, to, to create those incentives, good and bad. Uh, so overall, I think it's a very clever use of uh, a, a de democratic processes as well as uh, uh, there's a probabilistic processes. There's a lot of randomness that we're relying on here to ensure that uh, transactions are processed and consensus arrived. So uh, it, it's very clever and it, it's an acknowledgement that, that things have changed in the space since Bitcoin was first created. Uh, and it's those changes that uh, these developers are taking advantage of now. Yeah, fantastic description, as always, Santiago. By the way, I was surprised as well by that comment. I thought it was really intriguing uh, in terms of the benefits that they see in security. And it sort of foregrounds how important the Bitcoin, excuse me, the Ethereum core developers think security is uh, in their model. Uh, I should say in this next clip, Tim goes into more detail about this uh, and about those penalties uh, on the security side. Let's take a listen. So there's two types of penalties we have on okay. Ethereum and proof of stake is one we have slashing, one we have, we call the inactivity penalty. So there, there are two different, like there's basically two bad things you can do. One is being offline. So say you're a validator, we need you for two reasons. One, we need you to propose blocks when it's your turn. Um, and two, we need you to vote or attest to other people's blocks. So if you're offline, you kind of, you know, harm the network in that we don't get your blocks or your votes. Um, so we have an inactivity penalty. And that's kind of one of the ones that can be applied. And what's interesting there is Ethereum is designed to operate with part of the network being off offline, right? It's this globally distributed network. You can't assume that everybody has like 100% uptime with perfect connections. Um, so the, this inactivity penalty actually scales based on how many other people are offline at the same time as you. So if I'm the only one offline, right? Like I'm, I'm in Vancouver. If I run a validator in my house and I lose my internet for a day and nobody else is offline at the same time, I get a very minimal penalty because the network doesn't really 
care about that. Um, but if say you're like a large staking provider, you own 10% of the network or something like that, um, and you go offline, you get a much higher penalty, uh, which actually scales kind of exponentially because it's it's much worse for the network to have 10% of the stake be offline than one single validator. Um, so that's the first level of penalties. And um, this is really nice because we can kind of tweak towards having a more distributed set of validators or like at least validators like decorrelated failure modes. Um, and then what you mentioned, slashing. So slashing is a more severe penalty. And this is something we only apply in the case where you contradict yourself about what you think the history of the chain is. Um, so basically you say, you know, at this point in time, block A and block B are both the valid block. And that's like impossible. Um, and in practice, you know, th there's the way we see this happening is if people run like fancy backups for their validators, like, you know, oh, if my validator is offline, I'm going to back up and like have this other one come online. And then for some reason, the backup comes online, even though the other one was actually online and then they contradict themselves. Um, so if, if you're running your validator, it's usually much better to be offline for a short period of time and fix it than to try and have this fancy setup where you can actually cause a worse penalty for yourself because you're contradicting uh, yourself. And so what we do, we do two things if, if you get slashed. Uh, first is uh, we, we take away a larger a larger penalty because this is a, a bigger fault. This also scales with the amount of other people who are getting slashed at the same time. Um, mm -hmm. But second, we also eject you from the validator set. So we deem you to not be like a, a, a worthy validator a participant anymore. So basically you get a penalty and then you get put in the queue to exit you know, the rest of your capital. Um, so these are the two penalties we, we introduce, yeah. Okay, so this gets into the weeds in terms of the tech stuff. Uh, Tim is talking here about penalties, specifically about inactivity and about slashing. What's all this stuff mean, particularly for people who don't have tech backgrounds? Well, as I said earlier, uh, these are a number of computers uh, called validators that are operating around the world to make sure that the state of the ledger is reliable and, and correct. Uh, and so what these incentives uh, do is ensure that uh, a, that those validators are up and running, that their uptime and availability is there so that the network can continue to make forward progress. Uh, so that it's a very important characteristic. And of course, it, it weights it in proportion to how many other validators are up and running. Um, so uh, that's the first main thing. The, the second piece is uh, whether or not they submit a valid transaction. Uh, this is a, essentially a kind of a committee rule where um, you get randomly selected to process some transactions to be amended into a block and then add it to the chain. Uh, and as part of that process, you have to submit it to other validators to check it and verify that they, it is indeed correct. Uh, so that process, if, if you're caught essentially trying to cheat or you submit invalid transactions, you're penalized. Um, so for the average person, why that matters is when you go to select where you're going to stake your ETH, you need to ensure that that counterparty, that validator, um, has uh, uh, experience running this equipment, uh, has high reliability, has a brand, um, and is, is, is a trustworthy uh, actor uh, because their behavior will dictate whether or not you will get economically slashed um, and whether or not you will receive rewards. So all of those are factors that you should consider before staking. Yeah, really interesting analysis there, Santiago. And also, uh, it alludes to the point that you made earlier, which is about how randomness is used in the system uh, as a security feature. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, it, it, in terms of uh, proof of work, it was always really a competition to see who could solve a cryptographic problem uh, fastest and, and prove a certain amount of work. Uh, in this case, it's really about 
uh, being an available candidate. And then at, once you're an available candidate, you just get randomly selected uh, either to uh, uh, process a transaction and, and prove it to others or to attest that that transaction is in fact correct. Um, and so that randomness is what makes it so that anyone essentially can run a validator or anyone can stake and, and participate. So in, in a sense, it's a little more egalitarian than uh, simply something like uh, Bitcoin, where you know maybe the largest mining uh, farms or mining pools are the ones who get uh, the vast majority of the block reward. So it's an interesting dynamic. It's also devilishly complex from a security standpoint in terms of the uh, the advantages that it gives uh, for non-spoofing. If you know that a transaction is going to be validated against a, a randomly selected node in the network, it's very difficult to coordinate uh, a manipulation of that network for that reason. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, you know, the other interesting piece is that the amount of ETH that's staked, uh, the value of that ETH uh, can be significantly lower than the total value uh, secured on the network. Uh, and that's important because uh, subsequent to that, the rewards that are are given to the validators and to anyone attesting to that uh, can be a lot lower. And so the overall issuance of ETH into existence um, can will be radically lower than what it is today. Um, and so from a monetary perspective, that, that means uh, for investors, uh, just a lower supply of ETH, all other things being equal, um, also lower amount of the digital asset being sold into the market to pay for CapEx and OpEx, which is you know something that um, other proof of work chains have to worry about. Miners have to pay their expenses and they're typically fiat denominated. So this uh, takes a lot of that um, uh, sell pressure off the table uh, right. and it changes the issuance. Santiago, you set up the next clip perfectly uh, about the new carrot and stick system that proof of stake will introduce into Ethereum. Let's take a listen. And the thing that's worth noting is with proof of stake, we can lower the block rewards massively. And the reason for that is because we also are able to penalize, right? It's almost like with proof of work, you need to have super high block rewards because the incentive to do the right thing needs to be quite high because there's no disincentive to do the wrong thing. But with proof of stake, because we can basically dis disincentivize the wrong things as well, we don't need to have as high of an incentive uh, to do the right thing. Um, so on, on Ethereum's case, you know, in terms of just like network issuance, it's about like a 90% cut. Um, and I haven't checked the numbers today, but like last I did a week or two ago, on proof of work, we issue, you know, call it like 10 to 15,000 ETH per day in block rewards. Um, and proof of stake is on the order of 1,000 to 1,500. Um, so this is like an other kind of neat property where you can think of proof of stake as being like cheaper to secure the same amount of value in capital because we have both a carrot and a stick rather than just the carrot uh, as in proof of work. Once we transition to proof of stake, this 12,500 proof of work issuance per day just stops happening, right? We don't need it anymore. And we're already issuing the, the proof of stake issuance. That's worth noting um, because the proof of stake chain is already live and we have validators doing all this stuff on it. We've, we've been issuing the proof of stake rewards for like basically two years now. We control the amount that's issued on the beacon chain based on how many validators are in. So we there's like a sweet spot, you know, of, of validators that we want to target, which is roughly the range we're in right now of call it about half a million validators at 32 million ETH each. And what we do is if there's less than that, then you just raise the rewards, right? You make it more profitable for people to come. And if there's more, then you start lowering and tapering off the rewards. Um, and then people can make a choice, you know, like they can move their capital elsewhere uh, if they think that the rewards to being a validator are, are not high enough. Um, so this is why we don't have a fixed 
daily reward or supply like Bitcoin does, um, because instead we, we try to target like what's the right amount of economic security that we need for the chain, like what percentage of it should be validating. Um, and then if we're not there, then we should raise up the incentives such that people come and, and, and validate. And if we're already there, there's actually like, you know, some some bandwidth and storage overhead that we start paying uh, with, that all those on the network stop paying. So we'd want to remove the incentive to be like an incremental validator at that point. This is fascinating to me, Santiago. Rewards and penalties. If I understand Tim correctly, he's talking about the economic incentives versus disincentives in the proof of stake network. Specifically, he's saying uh, that proof of stake only has the ability to award incentives, meaning payment as block awards and I suppose transaction fees. While proof of stake has the ability to penalize bad actors, which means uh, the incentives can be lower because you also have the carrot as well as the stick. So some pretty heady uh, stuff here in terms of the technical complexity, but also the economics or tokenomics. What are your takeaways for all of this, Santiago, for people who are frankly just baffled by this conversation? Well, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, where game theory collides with central banking. Uh, what digital assets and these distributed networks have shown us is that you can create all manner of structures and incentives to uh, affect behavior. Uh, you know, the, the Bitcoin monetary policy is essentially baked in the cake and, and it, it hasn't changed. And it's one of its redeeming values that it, it, it's well known and, and reliable. Whereas here, I think they're taking the approach of um, a, a more active uh, community driven uh, central banking um, and deciding that uh, ultimately these negative and positive incentives will be used to secure the network and then ultimately uh, have a essentially a yield curve, a, a total amount of issuance from the validators um, and block rewards. So all of it's very interesting. It shows uh, essentially the evolution in thinking around how decentralized networks can can operate and how, how human beings can be incentivized to, to support it. So here's what I think our viewers can take away from your conversation with Tim Bako. Tim says proof of stake originally had just been bolted onto the existing proof of work network, but that it didn't take advantage of all the possibilities. So as long, uh, so the long awaited design and test of proof of stake for Ethereum from the scratch can finally begin. A big challenge was the fact that Ethereum never stops. It's a 24 by 7, 365 day network, as everyone knows. Baco says that while the energy consumption of proof of work is huge, he argues that the lower proof of stake was not, the lower cost, excuse me, of proof of stake was not the primary motivator behind the, the upgrade. He says that proof of stake introduces additional security measures uh, in the form of protocol penalties. So, if there's any issue, the protocol can step in and just fix it. Uh, he goes on to describe the penalties called inactivity and slashing penalties. Tim argues that this is one of the biggest differences between proof of work and proof of stake. POW has only incentives, that's carrots, uh, but POW also has penalties. Uh, excuse me, proof of stake also has penalties. That's the sticks. He thinks that this will be a big benefit to the wider network. Uh, with all that said, looks like we've got lots of viewer questions coming into us. I think we've got record viewership today on YouTube. Uh, what do you say, Santiago? Should we jump in and answer some of these? Yeah, sounds great. Uh, here's a question from Nibbler from YouTube. How much money do we think is on the sidelines waiting to buy ETH when the merge looks successful? This is a question that uh, at least uh, one or two people asked me yesterday at SALT. Well, you know, uh, some people call this merge as a, uh, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news event. And I think uh, from a technical perspective, uh, given the record the Beacon Chain has had, 
it's it's fairly likely to to go off without a, a, a hitch. So there shouldn't be many problems. But of course, there's always uncertainty. And so I suspect that there's a, a number of investors waiting on the sidelines to see how this all plays out. Uh, and then we'll probably see maybe some correction just before um, and then thereafter a, a resumption of buying uh, as the network kind of proves itself out in the new regime. Um, overall, I, I think that uh, the transition to proof of stake from a monetary policy standpoint means a lot less ETH on the table for sell pressure. So that, that overall should be a good thing. Well, you're a braver man than I am. I wouldn't touch this one with a barge pole when people ask me because it's really unclear. Uh, I think it's fair to say to understand what exactly is happening. Is it a buy the rumor, sell the news event? Uh, is it an event where people are just waiting to see if it's safe and then going to come in and buy? Like it could go either way. I think this is just, you know, too unprecedented to try and make predictions based uh, on any type of past precedent because there isn't any. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, that, that that's either opportunity if you understand and hopefully Real Vision here has provided you with uh, more information where you can make that kind of judgment for yourself. Uh, so it's either opportunity or risk. Uh, and so you have to decide how much exposure you want to take and we'll let the market decide. Uh, so this time tomorrow, we'll see how things went. Uh, you know, we're about 14 hours from the merge. And, and then at this point, um, we, we should see for, for the average at-home investor, they don't need to do anything. Uh, they don't need to move their funds. They don't need to change any uh, smart contracts or wallets. It's just it's essentially a passive role to wait and see. Here's a great question from JJ Ammo, also from YouTube. What are the expected positive effects for decentralized apps and users, e.g. lower gas fees? Uh, by the way, Santiago, for people who are not familiar with dApps, give us a little bit of a brief intro as you uh, set up this question. Well, the core of Ethereum is something called the Ethereum virtual machine, which runs on all of these decentralized nodes. And that virtual machine allows you to process smart contracts, very simple applications. Uh, it's a Turing complete system. So that means that you can run a, uh, an application like say a Uniswap or an OpenSea for NFTs. Um, so you know th those, those decentralized apps as they're called allow for the network, which is decentralized, to issue different kinds of assets into existence, uh, fungible, non-fungible tokens. Um, it does not, however, lower the gas fees. The, the block reward uh, and the block size is essentially, uh, uh, well, excuse me, the block size is essentially unchanged. So the competition for which transactions get added to a given block remains. Uh, and that means that in periods of high network utilization, you can still anticipate a rapid acceleration in, in the fees um, to get your transaction process. So uh, right now, Ethereum uh, development roadmap is going to have uh, future scalability uh, implementations, and much of that traffic will go to layer layer twos. Uh, but Ethereum is is essentially striving to be a settlement network where where whatever transactions occur right. at high throughput on layer two will get settled on a highly secure layer one, and that's its primary uh, value proposition. Yeah, extremely well framed there, Santiago. Here's the next question from Alan Lung. I believe this is from YouTube. Uh, and the question is, it is said that BTC and ETH will decouple due to their adoption model. I think they're talking about decoupling from traditional market pricing from U.S. equities. Uh, but will BTC be coupled to global liquidity since it's basically a monetary asset? I think the question here is, will there be decoupling uh, from the uh, TradFi markets, specifically U.S. equities on the one hand. And also, I think Alan is asking if there's going to be a decoupling between Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, in terms of the directionality and magnitude of price movements due to Bitcoin being a more monetary asset in Alan's view. 
Well, you know, I think there's narrative and then there's what the market says. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, I view Bitcoin and other digital assets more as a debasement hedge, uh, where central banks are maybe uh, injecting liquidity or relaxing financial conditions. It can lead to an increase in relative values for those digital assets. What we're seeing now is that as financial conditions tighten, the value of those assets continue to lower. So in the short term, and, and despite inflation rising and peaking, so in the short term, I, I see these assets still more of a, a risk on assets uh, and, and they'll continue to uh, essentially underperform uh, for a, a little while longer as the Fed continues to tighten. In the longer term, uh, they could be a, a great hedge depending on your jurisdiction against hyperinflationary type forces. Um, now, with respect to uh, uh, how they perform relative to one another, I expect outperformance on Ethereum uh, simply because the network models show that the amount of activity, the amount of wallets, the amount of smart contracts and applications that are are, are running on a particular network is a forward indicator for the, the relative price. So I do see uh, Ethereum outperforming Bitcoin, um, in, at least in the short term and, and maybe even in the long term. Whether or not that ever means a flippening uh, where uh, Ethereum becomes the number one by market cap uh, remains to be seen. But for now, um, I, I do see outperformance. Yeah, I'll jump in on this one too, Alan. I think the only thing that you can say for certain about decoupling is that it hasn't happened yet. Uh, it's all theoretical at this point. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of uh, of of a sort of you know support in the Bitcoin community, especially as you point to uh, for this notion of an off the grid asset uh, for an asset that's a store of value that's decoupled from central banks. But we simply haven't seen that happen. What we've seen is, as you sort of suggest, and the question is that global liquidity, uh, when it comes into the system, it raises all boats, uh, and when it goes out of the system, all the boats sort of simultaneously fall. So in terms of uh, that decoupling, it's I think uh, fair to say that it's just theoretical at this point. Uh, it may or may not happen. It may take months. It may take years. It may take dev or it may never come. We're just going to have to see, but we'll be watching it here uh, on this show. Here's a question that comes to us from Will Anderson from YouTube. Uh, does the transaction per second metric increase after the merge, Santiago? So there is a slight improvement in the time uh, in between blocks, um, but it's only by a few seconds. So overall, tra tra transactions per second won't meaningfully rise um, and the block space also won't meaningfully rise. So as we said earlier, um, the network is designed essentially to be more of a secure settlement layer uh, with a high degree of security and the ability to fine tune these monetary policies. But uh, the layer twos are where most of the transaction processing is going to occur uh, and where most of the reduction in the fees are expected. So uh, yeah, so, so for now, I don't anticipate much of an increase in TPS. Here's one from Seb from the Real Vision site. Uh, how do you guys estimate the probability of a successful merge at this point, Santiago? Uh, I would put it over 90%, to be honest. The Beacon Chain has been running for quite some time. And the main uh, risk in these uh, networks is that you get some kind of attack. Uh, and there's been a substantial amount of value that has been secured by Beacon for um, over a year now. So if that's not enough of an incentive for an attacker, I don't know what is. So I, I think that... The probability is high uh, and it should be fairly transparent to uh, anyone. We, we did have a hard fork uh, just about a week ago, Bellatrix hard fork. That was really um, a, a, a equally risky kind of departure uh, and, and that went off without a hitch. So if, if that's if that's any indication of how this should go, I'm fairly confident. 
Yeah, I agree with everything that Santiago just said. I would only add to that that you know the challenge here is that we're talking about the domain uh, of very low pro- probability, very high impact events. Uh, I feel like I should be giving the Jeff Goldblum speech from Jurassic Park. Life finds a way. Attackers find a way. This is a moment of maximal vulnerability right now. I think most people in the space agree, although there is a sense that this has been, as Santiago detailed there, uh, extremely well tested. Uh, but you know, there is always that sort of edge case risk uh, that someone is going to take advantage of this. And you, you mentioned, Santiago mentioned that uh, this idea that uh, Beacon Chain has already been su- securing tens of billions of dollars in value. Maybe the honeypot just gets that much bigger uh, and someone who's found an exploit uh, might take the moment of the merge to execute it. But obviously we don't know. Uh, and that's what makes this interesting. Here's a question that comes to us from Scub Factory from YouTube. And the question is, how is staking reward determined? So the staking reward is a combination of the block reward as well as the transaction fees. Uh, so you know the validators get rewarded based on their uptime, based on uh, their uh, 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 um, how other attesters have have viewed the transaction as correct or incorrect. Um, so and, and the amount of economic activity that's going on on the network at any given time. So it's the combination of both two, both the block reward and the fees that determine the overall uh, reward to the validators. It, from there, it's then apportioned based on the amount of stake that uh, you as a participant, uh, if you're an external uh, person who's gonna stake against a validator, it's apportioned based on your relative contribution. So it almost inverts the idea of a, of a proof of work mining pool where everyone who contributes hash shares and the rewards. It essentially does that, but at a more of an egalitarian uh, perspective where Anyone staking against a validator can share in that block and in those transaction fees. Final question from Sergio Marin. This comes to us from YouTube. And the question is, hello, Santiago. What's the worst case scenario in the case the emerge event isn't successful? A man after my own heart there. Well, uh, you know, there's been talk about a fork in the network. We've seen uh, prior forks in the Ethereum network. We have Ethereum Classic. We now have the the current Ethereum uh, canonical chain. Uh, we could see a, a fork into ETH uh, proof of work. Um, the, the real uh, gatekeepers, I think, of that process is the, are the exchanges and whether or not they'll support the issuance of those alternative chains and 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 at digital assets on those exchanges, uh, because those exchanges are where the fiat gateways re- reside. Uh, so if there is a problem with the uh, proof of stake methodology or an exploit, there's a probability that a lot of people migrate very rapidly to either another proof of work, uh, Ethereum Classic, or to ETH proof of uh, work itself. So uh, we'll see if that happens. So far, there's not much um, agreement about supporting ETH proof of work. Uh, and it's unlikely that exchanges at this point will will support it. But if there's a large error in the network uh, or something, there's a bug, an inflation bug or, or something like that, um, then you could see a, a very quick migration. Uh, there's, one of the things we didn't discuss today was this huge amount of hardware compute in infrastructure that's out there by miners, yes. which is essentially rendered useless at this point. Um, and that that could affect other markets. You know, I, I'd be short selling NVIDIA if if you really understood how many fewer GPUs are going to be purchased. So, uh, you know, this has implications for a lot of other markets, not just crypto. Yeah, important point about all of that hash power going basically unneeded after this. And it's, an, it's sort of a big unknown question, I think, uh, in the merge. I'll give Sergio a simple answer. What's the worst case scenario? One word, chaos. 
obviously, that is a, a sort of, as I was saying earlier, I think a low probability, high impact event. But the worst case scenario, I think it's pretty damn bad. Yeah, there's billions of dollars of, of economic value secured by this network. Uh, and, you know, to have to unwind that, uh, that, that would be a very difficult proposition. It would leave a black eye on, on the digital asset markets. But, you know, Ethereum is not the only uh, asset out there. And there's a lot of other digital assets um, that will continue to operate reliably. Uh, and there are exchanges that will facilitate the transfer. So uh, it, it's something where if you need to, you can take your value and, and express it in another network. Yeah, by the way, I should just say great questions today and a great mix. People, obviously, uh, who are relatively new to the space, but also people watching us today who are very sophisticated, who have very sophisticated questions to ask. And we're going to continue to take more questions on this. In fact, we'll be taking more questions on the merge tomorrow. That's going to be a major part of our show. Uh, Santiago, what else can I say, man? You are a rock star. This is fantastic conversation to have you on. Not only do you understand this, but you possess the even rarer talent of being able to explain it to people who don't have tech backgrounds. Really appreciate you being with us today. I appreciate you having me, Ash. A real pleasure. This is very exciting. I'm so glad I got a chance to be a part of it and help educate some of the uh, viewers. Thanks. Well, I hope you can come back again soon because this really was a terrific conversation. Absolutely. Thank you, Ash. So that's it for today's show. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. As always, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and smash that like button. Remember, this is your show. We want to hear from you on what's working and what's not. So drop a comment below and let us know your feedback. What do you guys want to see? What themes would you like us to cover? We appreciate you sharing your time with us today, and we appreciate you sharing your time with us in the comments. Tomorrow, we'll be waking up, hopefully, hopefully, uh, in a post-merge world. Expect lots of analysis here. Plus, we'll bring you a special panel of experts led by Perry and Boring on regulatory issues. See you tomorrow live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Thanks for watching. Yeah.